We are coming to the end of our series in Colossians, so it's sort of a sad day today, isn't it? Uh, who here has enjoyed the series? Yeah, it's been such a beautiful book, so, so much wisdom, so much beautiful insights as to who Jesus is, so much beautiful insights as to who we are in light of who Jesus is, and it's really just been a season for us as a church to really examine sort of what it means to be the people of God, what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. And so, if a little recap, if, if you haven't been here throughout the series, uh, Colossians was a, a, a book, but primarily it's called a letter, a letter that was written by the Apostle who? Paul to the church in Colossae, and it's a very young church plant, uh, a lot of new believers, and so if you have a young church plant with a lot of new believers, there's most likely going to be a lot of issues, right? And there's going to be a lot of worldviews to deal with, there's going to be a lot of questions to deal with, there's going to be a lot of um, um, truth to deal with, as even Lee was mentioning. And so Paul begins to remind them that Jesus is the king of the cosmos and that he is ruling and reigning over all creation and he is ushering the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. And therefore, the, in light of that, the church and the people of God have this mission, this calling to live out of that, out of the kingdom of God. And so throughout the letter, Paul is praying that they would learn to be thankful for who God is, but that thankfulness would transform into how they live, how their lives are structured, how their lives and habits are formed, and he prays that they would become mature in Christ. Maturity, living in light of the new kingdom under a new identity. And so the second half of the book, as we've been looking at, is about how the kingdom of God affects the ways that we live in our relationships, um, primarily the relationships of our, our marriages and our families and parenting, primarily in our relationships with one another as the church, in our relationship with the community, in our work relationships. And so all these things Paul has been introducing, and now he comes to the end of the letter. Now, what I find fascinating, as you turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, as Paul ends the letter here, it's really just a list of names. And he writes off and he lists a bunch of relationships that have been developed with him that have really primarily served the mission and purpose of the church. And so as Paul ends the letter, he begins to celebrate some stories of how this is actually at work, how the people of God that he's partnered with are actually accomplishing the kingdom of God and the mission of God. And so it's this beautiful little reflection that he has on people who partnered with him in the gospel, people who belong to him in the mission that he established. Now, this letter then and the conclusion of the letter really is this beautiful summary of what it means to be part of the community of God. Because we all belong to one another as the church, amen? And we all belong to the mission of God. And so often we can take that lightly, can't we? The sense of belonging, the sense of purpose that we hold. Uh, but really this is a deep, deep existential question and a deep, deep need we have as humans, is it not? And I would go as far as to say that we as humans are created with a longing to belong something bigger than ourselves. Who has that longing in their lives? 
We long to be part of a group. We long to be part of a people. We long to be part of a mission that is beyond just our own selfish interests. And so the the question that we, we want to address then is this question of, well, what does it look like for us to belong to one another? And what does it look like to partner for the mission of God? And I think this is quite beautiful because even I remember reading a study, I think it came out in 2020, uh, that this, this question, this, this desire and longing to belong to something bigger than ourselves, there was actually this study done in 2020 that humans crave such a deep social interaction. And this craving that comes from a, a, a desire to be social beings and interact socially and to belong to something, it is actually found in the same part of the brain as our craving for food. Isn't that interesting? Now, who knows what a craving for food is like? <laughs> we, we probably experience that daily, right? We need to eat today. I long for this. I need it. It's a necessity. And that very same part of the brain is where our longing for social interaction and our longing for social engagement and our longing for social purpose comes from. And so you realize how how deep that longing is, a longing to be something, part of something bigger than ourselves. Now, it was fascinating for me this last week. Uh, my, My grandpa passed away this last week, so it's been a little bit of an emotional week. But I, I was interested, as we're going through some of the historical documents and getting things together for the funeral director, we came across my grandpa's birth certificate. And as I was reading the birth certificate, guess one of the things that it said about him on there? It said, illegitimate child. <laughs> Talk about a sense of belonging to a family, right? <laughs> I didn't even know they used to do that with birth certificates, but I guess back in the day, basically his father abandoned him, so he was an illeg- a legitimate child. Uh, sadly, his mother would pass away when he was seven, and then he would get tossed around from house to house, never ended up being adopted, um, never ended up having a deep sense of belonging to a family. And yet at the same time, the, the beautiful story about my grandpa is the redemption that God put in his life. Because he was brought in by a family called the Olson family who knew the Lord. And I think it was when he was 16 or something like that. But they brought him in. They never, entered, they never adopted him, but he sort of became a part of the family. And that's where he first heard the gospel. And that's where he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where he found a belonging to the people of God. And even more than that, he found a purpose in the mission of God. And he was faithful to that mission for the rest of his life. And so when we look at this, this desire, this, this purpose that we were created for, belonging with a, with a mission and meaningful participation in a community, um, the, the gospel is the good news is that God has established that and provided for us in such a beautiful way. And really this goes back to the entire story of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the list in Colossians of names soon, but as we, we look at Paul's closing to the letter and as he celebrates all these partners in the gospel, I wanted to first of all step back in the story and say, well, why is there a need to partner in the gospel? Why is there a need for this church community that Paul celebrates? 
And really, this goes back to the beginning of the story of God. Genesis 1, 27, 28 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was the mandate. This was the cultural mandate. This was the mission that God gave to humanity. Now, think about it. This is the mission from the very beginning of the existence of humanity. And think about this concept. God created humanity in his image. Now think about some of the implications of that. We call God the Trinity, which means what? Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, which means that God is a relational being. So part of being created in the image of God is that we as humans are relational beings. We're created for relationship. We're created for partnership. We're created for collaboration together. We're created to work with one another. Isn't that beautiful? Now, another wild thing that I'm going to bring out from this as well is that God was also the one who did what with creation? He created it, right? He brought it into existence. He brought order out of chaos, which means that part of us being created in the image of God is to be people of creation, to take things and turn them into beauty, to create order out of chaos. And this is the mission that God gives in light of that, is that we are supposed to have what overall creation then? We're supposed to have dominion. We're supposed to rule and subdue it. In other words, this is the very calling we have as the people of God to work with God co-workers, partners with God in this life for us to create something beautiful, to create things of significance, to create culture, and we become stewards of creation. And so this is intrinsic then of what it means to be human. Now, I was talking to someone this past week about a guy named Peter Singer. Has anyone ever heard of that name? He's an atheist philosopher, a very fascinating man. And he sort of popularized the term. I don't think he came up with it specifically, but he popularized the term speciesism. Has anyone heard of that term before? But speciesism is just another way of saying that humans and animals are all the same. And if we elevate the value, the intrinsic value of humanity over all the animals, that's speciesism. Okay. In other words, that's mistreating the animals. Yet, the worldview of Christianity and the worldview from um, God's perspective is completely different because humans have an intrinsic value, amen? They have a value. I mean, you think of it this way. Uh, when, when we think about the comparisons of value and um, responsibility towards um, animals and the calling and the mandate that God has given to be a culture of creation... Uh, have you ever seen a cat cultivating a garden before, right? Have you ever seen an elephant design a rocket to be sent up into space? Like, th there is this intrinsic difference between value of humans and animals. 
And, and I think that becomes important because it reminds us that we are not just animals. We are not just to live out animal instinctions in this life. We're created for a mission and a purpose and we hold an intrinsic value and that value is to partner with God. And so really the calling of the church, and Paul's been bringing this through the letter of Colossians as well, that the calling of the church is to be the best example to the world of what a community can do under the rule and reignship of God. Another way he's saying that is the church should be the best example of what God can do with a human community. And what is some of what God wants to do with a human community? Let's just brainstorm. What are some of the things that God desires from a human community? What are we supposed to be cultivating? What are we supposed to be creating as image bearers of God? Yeah, relationship with, relationship with God, right? Relationship with one another. What are those relationships supposed to look like? What has Colossians taught us about that? Yeah, love, kindness, patience, forgiveness, forbearance, right? All these things, generosity, mercy. What are some other things we're supposed to be cultivating, creating? What else does God desire from human community? Yeah, reconciliation, yeah. Teamwork, partnership, collaboration. Yeah, a spiritual relationships, right? Yeah. And so all this thing is, is bringing us to the intention that God is creating something beautiful through his people, through the church. And that has been the desire from the very beginning of creation. And so this calling to be relational beings who partner with one another is part of the image of God, part of us being creatures who create and produce things of beauty, things of wonder, things of, of um, value is part of being in the image of God. And N.T. Wright says it like this. I, I've said this quote a couple times, I think, but it's worth repeating here because he reminds us that the mission and partnership that we have in the gospel for the kingdom of God lasts into eternity. And he says this, he says, what you do in the present, in this life, by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, all the endeavors that God values here and now will last into eternity because God values them for eternity. It says these activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day where we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. And so this is what the entire letter of Colossians has been leading us to is, 
Everything you do in this life, the relationships that you restore, the acts of generosity, the habits that you form, the way your character is developed and formed, all these things matter to God. Why? Because they go back to the very mission and purpose of humanity. And this is why Paul again tells us in Colossians, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you're a follower of Jesus and you are a new creation, if you have life in Christ, he says, seek the things that are where? That are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are where? Above, not on things that are earth. Now, sometimes when we hear that, especially as Westerners, we have this concept of above and heaven that's pretty distorted. Where sometimes we think of heaven as hanging out in the clouds, playing harps and stuff, eating cream cheese with those old commercials, right? We, we think that's what setting our mind on things above is all about. And it can almost be this form of escapism, leaving this world to enter into some heavenly cloudy bliss that sounds extremely boring, actually. What God is saying to us in setting our minds on things that are above is setting our minds on kingdom realities that will last for eternity. Setting our minds on being the people that God has called us to be in our relationships with ourselves, with God, with others, with the community, and that we would be a people of love and justice and beauty and creativity and mercy and all these things. That's what it means to set our minds on things that are above. That's what we are called to pursue. And so that was an extremely long introduction, by the way. I haven't even started the sermon yet, just to warn you. <laughs> just to... <laughs> but this is what Paul is building from in Colossians. And it starts back with the, the original call of humanity to be culture makers, to create a culture of what it looks like when God rules and reigns over his people. Because ultimately that is what the world longs for, that is what we long for, and that is in fact where history is moving. And we get this beautiful reality of partnering with our God to make that come into fruition. We partner with him to see the kingdom of God come. And so, with that in mind, I will begin my sermon. <laughs> okay, I know the text is small there, but just think, this is a bunch of just names that you have to go. So I'm going to read the text, finish this letter, and then I'm going to talk about each of these characters and, and how God um, brought about his kingdom purposes through them. So Colossians 4, verse 7. You guys can turn your Bibles there. Tychius will tell you about my many activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. 
and Jesus who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, in other words, Jewish, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, or Epaphras, if you want to say it right, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and the Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What a beautiful letter, amen? And it's neat to see how Paul celebrates the work of the faithful partners in the gospel. And and it reminds us, I mean, we can put Paul on a pedestal, right? Where we see Paul as this wonderful church planner and missionary, and we read the book of Acts, and he's doing all these things, and at times it can feel like he's doing it alone, right? That he's almost this superhero. And yet uh, this letter reminds us how important other people were in the mission and the purpose of the church. And so let's walk through some of this. Uh, basically, what we see in this final list of people is we see two messengers. We see three Jewish guys that were incredibly influential and encouraging to Paul. We see three Gentiles, and then a final couple greetings to Laodicea and Nympha and Archippus as well. And so, who are these people? Jump into history mode right now. Uh, don't worry, I won't go too deep for you, but let's just get a glimpse of where we are at with some of these individuals in history. Well, Tychicus, well, what is he doing in this context? He is responsible to doing what with this letter? He's supposed to carry it to the church in Colossae. Now, think about this. This document on papyrus would have been extremely valuable, and it was an incredibly difficult journey for him to get to Colossae. So this is something that Paul, someone Paul must have deeply trusted in, right? There's a deep trust here. Not only that, but he's got to come to the church at Colossae, and he's got to read it in front of them. And as I know from experience preaching, as soon as you preach something, what's going to happen next? There's going to be a lot of questions, right? And so Paul's not only trusting him with bringing the letter, a very expensive document in an incredibly difficult journey, but he's also going to be responsible for dealing with all the questions of what Paul is going through, questions about the letter. And so he would have been an incredibly, incredibly uh, gifted man. And that's why Paul calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister. So as Tychicus, I'm not going to spend too much time with all these guys, but the next one is Onesimus. Now, where do we read about him from? Anyone know? Philemon, right? And Philemon was a member of the church of Colossae. And I find it absolutely fascinating that Paul includes him here. 
Because there's a lot that could be said here, but Onesimus, he calls a faithful and beloved brother, and he says, who is one of you? Why do you think that's significant? Because who was Onesimus? He was a slave, right? And I think this is such a beautiful application of what Paul has already been writing, because just a few chapters later, Paul said, there is no what? There is no Slave, there is no master, there is no, in Ephesians, woman, man, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew. In other words, all the barriers to the gospel, all the barriers to community of faith have been broken down. And so he reminds them, he says, even though he's a slave, and you feel like he might not fit into your culture and your sphere, he says, he is one of you. He is a brother. And so I find it beautiful as well with the story of Onesimus that uh, we read about Paul advocating for him because if you know his story, he's basically a slave uh, who was under Philemon and Onesimus didn't obviously want to be a slave. So what did he do? He ran away. He tried to get out of there. And Paul basically advocates for him with Philemon and says, you guys need to restore this relationship. You need to be reconciled as believers and ultimately restores that relationship and ultimately fights for Onesimus' freedom, his physical freedom. And so there's this beautiful backstory there. Um, so if you want more on that, you can read Philemon. We don't have time for that. And Aristarchus, uh, here's, a, here's a neat little thought. He says, my fellow prisoner greets you, my fellow prisoner. Now, something interesting is going on here um, because the way the Greek language is phrased here, we, we don't actually think that he would have been a, a physical prisoner. In other words, we don't think he would have actually got arrested for something. What's most likely happening here is that he is constantly visiting Paul under house arrest and that he is an encouragement to Paul and that he's coming alongside him. Now, obviously, the odds are he, he could have got arrested for, for preaching the gospel, but that's what the language sounds more, more like, that he's coming along Paul in his, in his suffering, in his hardship, and he's become a deep encouragement to Paul. And then Mark, we come across Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And Mark is most famous for what? Writing... The gospel of Mark, right? The gospel according to Mark. Now, what I find beautiful about Paul mentioning him here is if, if you remember from our study in Acts, we have the story of, of Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. And Mark creates this conflict between Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because Paul basically said, we can't trust him. He's unreliable. And Barnabas was saying, no, we should take him on our journey. And Paul's like, well, he already abandoned us. So What's, what's going on? And there was this conflict that happened. And what's beautiful here is there's obviously been this reconciliation and restoration between Mark and Paul. And he celebrates what Mark is doing and what Mark is accomplishing. And he celebrates Mark to the church. Then Justice, the name Jesus. Now, 
Jesus would have been a, a decently common name in the first century. And so obviously if you were gathered as a church and you were worshiping together and there's a guy at the front named Jesus and you go to communion time and you start saying, well, let's take the blood and flesh of Jesus. I'm sure he probably would have left the building, right? <laughs> or if you're singing praises to Jesus and you got a guy named Jesus up at the front, uh, probably would have been a little awkward, right? So it was common for some of those people named Jesus that they would have a second name, uh, a second name, and his second name was Justice. And so Justice as this Jewish partner. So these, these are the main Jewish partners in the mission of Paul. And then, and again, he says, they have been a comfort to me. They were fellow workers in the kingdom of God. That's why I did all that long preliminary work, because they're partners in the kingdom of God. This is what they're accomplishing. This is what they're working for. This is what their purpose and calling is in life. Okay, then the next one, Epaphras. He is a faithful minister, a servant of Christ. He struggles for you in prayer that you may stand assured and matured. Now, he most likely would have been the, the, the pastor of this church, this pastor of this house church. And, and Paul is commending him because he has spent so much time and energy. And he, Paul even uses the language of struggling, praying that the church would be mature. And especially you think about this young church plant, but you also think about churches out there that are not mature. And a church that is immature, a church that is not healthy, is that a fun place to be? No. Especially as a pastor, right? <laughs> and so he's praying, he's praying, God, like, the church has to deal with their sinful nature. The church has to deal with their conflict. The church has to deal with their hardships. And he's just praying, God, please bring maturity. Please bring about people who actually follow the way of Jesus because that's what advances your kingdom and that's what creates a beautiful community. So he's praying, he's praying, he's praying for this community of faith. And then we see Luke. Again, what is Luke famous for? He was a, a doctor who did what? Yeah, he wrote the, the, the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And so Luke is sort of one of those unsung heroes in the New Testament, because we often talk about Paul, who, who wrote so much in the New Testament, but, but Luke writes an incredible amount, doesn't he? Even though Luke only has two books, they're extremely long books, and so Luke is incredibly important to the development of the New Testament and the mission of God. Then he talks about Demas, and this was sort of a relatively unknown figure. Uh, there's, there's a mention of another Demas in 2 Timothy. We don't know 100% if it's the same Demas, uh, but he doesn't have a good reputation in 2 Timothy. He actually abandons um, the mission of God. Uh, he's sort of recorded as someone who fell in love with the world and abandoned the mission of God. And so uh, it possibly could be he's someone who turned away from the mission, but it might be a different person altogether. And then another beautiful mention is Nympha and the church in her house. And so she would have been this incredibly influential woman uh, to the church of Colossae and to the church of Laodicea. And she's basically uh, hosts a, a, a church plant in a house, a house church. 
And so it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, she could have been a pastor. She could have been an elder in that context. But she's basically running a house church and hosting a house church. And so it's beautiful to see her mention. And, and, and I think this is a neat thing for us to wrestle with. Because I've heard even people talk about the Apostle Paul as being misogynistic and devaluing women. And yet when you actually read Paul and what he celebrates and how he, he explains his theology in the context... Um, women are very much valued and appreciated in the kingdom of God. And Paul definitely um, is, um, brings that into light. And then Archippus is basically this man we don't know anything about other than Paul told him to finish the ministry he was supposed to complete. And so that's about all we know about him. And so little snapshot didn't want to go into too much depth because it's just a list of names that can be overwhelming, but this is what Paul was celebrating in partnering the gospel. This is the day in, in and out relationships that advance the kingdom of God. And, and to close our time together, I just want to process a question then for us. And, and the question that I think comes out of this text is to see ourselves in the story of God. Because if the story of God begins in Genesis, and it begins with a cultural mandate for us to be a people created in the image of God, to co-lead and co-rule with God over creation, and to create communities and to create cultures of shalom, peace, and justice, and mercy, and beauty, everything Paul reminds us of who to be and what to do in Colossians, then we have to ask the question after the end of this letter. If a letter was written to our church, what would be written about you? And I think that's such a key question for us to process. Because so often in our lives we can be pursuing and living for everything but the kingdom of God. And so often in our lives we can be investing and living for anything but the mission of God. And, and a text like this reminds us that what ultimately is going to be celebrated at the end of our lives as believers is what was accomplished that had eternal value. What was accomplished that will actually last into eternity? What will be accomplished that will actually further the mission and kingdom of God? And so you can reflect about people that you've known, perhaps that have passed away. And you think about memories of them. And I think about my dad this past year, now my grandpa. And I often think, like, what do I actually remember of their lives that truly mattered? And it was beautiful looking at some picture books of my, my dad this last week. And realizing a, a lot of what he'd be remembered for are simply investing in relationships and the partnerships that he created to see something beautiful. And one of the books I was, I was reading was a, was a picture book that my parents worked with international student ministries for years. And there was this book that they put together basically that had all these different testimonies from some of the different international students of how my parents had impacted their lives and stories and pictures of events that took place. And it reminded me, like, at the end of the day, is that not the important things to be remembered for? 
Is the relationships, the partnering in the gospel, the desire to see the gospel spread, the desire to see lives transformed, the desire to bring people with a sense of belonging and purpose, um, is that not what matters in life? And yet so often we completely neglect the very thing that God has created us for. And we find ourselves so often with a sense of purposelessness or meaninglessness because we have neglected what God has called us to do and to be. And so my encouragement then is for us to think about that from that perspective is, well, when we think about these relationships that were developed with Paul and the church and the partnership to the gospel, do you think any of these relationships happened without work? No. It would have taken a lot of time and energy and investment in relationship with people. And what's fascinating is we often sort of watch TV shows and um, we, we watch how relationships work in an entertainment perspective and you'll have strangers come and meet and they'll be best friends within the first episode, right? Is that the reality of life? No, friendships take investment. Partnering takes investment. Working towards something of purpose in the community takes investment. It takes time. It takes energy. And yet at the same time, there's this beautiful reality that when we invest in those things, when we invest in what truly matters for the kingdom, God will create something beautiful out of it. And God promises to bring the kingdom of God into fruition. And so as we, we close this letter together, I pray that this would be a letter that sticks with you for the rest of your life, uh, that you continue to look back on it to remind yourself who Jesus is. There's beautiful descriptions over and over again defining who Jesus is, but also who we are in light of who Jesus is and the very purpose and mission we're called to in light of who Jesus is. So let's pray to that extent. I'll call up the team as I do so. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we celebrate that you, Jesus, came to us. The King of the cosmos came to seek and save the lost. You came to bring salvation and redemption and reconciliation. And Lord, you, you came to remind us that the kingdom of God is at hand and your rule and reign will last into eternity and that we as humans, as followers of Jesus, are called to partner with you in that rule and reign. And so Lord, we first of all come in confession. We confess because the mission and purpose for which we were created for, we often turn from. We often pursue selfish desires. We often pursue lives of, of comfort or of ease or of riches or of a purpose that we create for ourselves, and yet you have called us to something different. You have called us to seek the well-being of the other. You have called us to sacrifice for the sake of the community. You have called us to exercise forgiveness and mercy and grace and love as daily habits in our life. 
And so, Lord, we confess that that is isn't often true. But we know that you, by the power of your Spirit, has given us the hope and the ability and the power to bring that into fruition. And so we pray that as we look at these lists of names and we read about the beautiful things that they accomplished throughout history and the ways that your kingdom of peace, that your kingdom of justice, that your kingdom of mercy, that your kingdom of salvation, as that flourished through these people, Lord, we pray that it would also flourish through us. That the things we create and the words that we speak and the actions that we do would bring about a world and a community of love and beauty and fruition. We pray that this would be done for the good of our community and the glory of your name. We thank you, Jesus, for reminding, reminding us of this truth through the letter to the church in Colossae. Lord, as the church has been instructed and guided by this letter, we pray that by your spirit we would too as well. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are God who speaks to us. May we listen and may we live in obedience to it by your spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.